Hey everybody, welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. Uh, we're talking about cryptocurrencies. Just kidding. Um, no, we, we all have our favorite cryptocurrencies, but we're in the green room. We're gonna catch up with our guests and uh, get an idea of what they're gonna be talking about today. So let's go to Maureen. What are you talking about? Where are you calling in from? I know you've got an awesome book. Tell us a little bit more. Sure, thanks. Uh, coming in, calling in from Boston and recently partnered with a couple of colleagues at Bain to write a book called Winning on Purpose. It's the fifth book um, from Bain on the concept of customer loyalty and net promoter. So really excited to talk about it today. Thank you so much for being here. So hopefully it's warming up over there. Looks like it. It's but... starting to feel a little like spring. Hopefully it's not just yeah. a, a fleeting thing. Hopefully it's here to stay, but we'll see. It's February in Boston, so I don't, I'm not going to put any odds on the table. <laughs> All right. And Mike, um, let's go to you. And then, of course, we'll go to Josh later. So, Mike, Absolutely. what are we talking about? Yeah, Mike Murray, founder and CEO of Scope Security. Um, what I talk about all the time is healthcare cybersecurity and the, the challenges that healthcare specifically has and why it's so much harder than than every other business is, has to do security well. Oh, very, very cool. Thank you for being here. Josh. What are you calling in from? And we love your shield. What's going on back there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in uh, a neighboring Maureen in uh, New Hampshire. Um, I'm a uh, founder of IamTheCavalry.org, a group of hackers trying to save lives through security research. And that put me in emergency federal service for the last year and a half running the pandemic response for uh, the cybersecurity infrastructure security agencies. So Mike and I will dovetail nicely on how these attacks now affect loss of life. Oh my God, this is going to be great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we're going to start, we'll turn it back to you, Hannah. We'll do a count and then uh, we'll kick off. Okay, three, two, one. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. Ray is a regular television contributor on Fox Business, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, co-founder, Vala Ashar. And as he mentioned, he's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. But more importantly, he's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. And uh, executives around the world are always paying attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets, prime ministers, heads of states, right? A lot of folks are looking to him for inspiration. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV like Bloomberg, and more importantly, posting insightful insights, especially about this show, on places like ZDNet. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. What do we have today? Who are our awesome guests to kick it off? We're really fortunate, Ray, to have two of the world's you know, top security experts on our show. We have Mike Murray, founder and CEO of Scope Security, and Josh Corman, founder of I Am The Calvary. What a great name. <laughs> and ex-senior advisor to CISA. Mike is founder and CEO of Scope, Scope Security, a healthcare security company. At Scope, Mike builds on his nearly two decades of experience leading teams of highly skilled security professionals to solve critical security problems in healthcare. Throughout his career, Mark has helped discover some of the world's most notorious breaches and nation-state threats, and is sought out uh, by industry, media, and security teams for insights on today's most pressing issues in cybersecurity. Prior to finding, uh, founding Scope, Mike served as the chief security officer at Lookout, where he presided over the protection of nearly 200 million 
users and their data. Previously, he led product development security at GE Healthcare. You can follow Mike on Twitter at M-M-U-R-R-A-Y. Josh Corman is the founder of I Am The Cavalry and just ended 18 months serving as the chief strategist for CISA regarding COVID healthcare and public safety. Josh previously served a senior role uh, like uh, CSO for PTC, Director of Cyber Statecraft Initiatives for the Atlantic Council and CTO of Sonatype. Josh co-founded Rugged Software and I Am The Calvary to encourage new security approaches in response to the world's increasing dependence on digital infrastructure. Josh is adjunct faculty at Carnegie Mellon's Heinz College and served on the Congressional Task Force for Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Corman, J-O-S-H-C-O-R-M-A-N. Welcome, Josh and Mike, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Really excited to have you here and, you know, I mean, some wonderful expertise dealing with some of the most pressing issues that we saw over the last 24 months. Um, and so um, I'm going to ask a few questions, really starting about, like, what is the state of where we are today? You know, what are the problems facing healthcare organizations? And, and I think that's probably the first one. So what's unique about this healthcare environment um, that makes it tough? And I want to start with healthcare because that's, you know, the first thing that people are thinking about right now. So we'll start with Mike and then we'll go to Josh. Yeah, so so we've seen we've seen a ton of attacks over the last few years, and Josh will talk probably more about that than I will, but it, because he's had a global visibility into some of these things. But healthcare is a really unique environment, and and I like to say that a modern health system isn't one technology environment; it's three all in the same room. And the challenge with that is we have really good security tools for some of that. And we don't have really good security tools for others. So, so there's a traditional IT environment, right? You walk into a hospital, they have laptops and desktops and switches and routers and all of that stuff. Then you have clinical technology, you know, medical devices, CT scanners, MRIs, fusion pumps, all of the things that are designed to deliver care. And you have the electronic health record system, you know, whether that's the the big part of it is Epic, but all the way to the to the patient portal down to the billing, all about moving patients throughout the hospital. Well, we have really great IT security tools, right? I make the joke often that CrowdStrike works on a laptop in a bank the same way it works on a laptop in a hospital. But you don't have CrowdStrike for Epic and Cerner. You don't have CrowdStrike for a CT scanner. And so you walk into a health system and they have a very sort of lumpy ability to secure their environment. They can secure the IT stuff pretty well, but there's all this other stuff that they can't really do anything about. I mean, there's no CrowdStrike for mumps? Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm sure CrowdStrike would like to, but the problem is you have to know so much about medical devices and, and yeah. there's all these regulations and the vendors are difficult. There's all these challenges that people don't really understand that healthcare is really different than traditional business. And uh, far too many security companies think like, oh, well, we work in a bank, so hospitals can use us too. And mm. that's not really true. That's not true. Josh, what about you? What, what, what are you saying? Well, there's the answer pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Uh, coming out of our congressional task force in 2017, we had five uncomfortable truths. I won't go through all of them, but we the headline was healthcare industry cybersecurity is in critical condition. So we knew we were prone. We knew we were prey, but we lacked sufficient interest from the predators. And that was changing because as we published, uh, WannaCry uh, affected 30 to 40% of UK health institutions that weekend. Uh, so healthcare quickly became the number one target of ransom crews worldwide. Mm -hmm. But when you fast forward, um, some of those seams and cracks and underinvestments, such as 85% of the hospitals in the country don't have a single IT security person on staff, not oh, even gone. Wow. Or they're defending unsupported software or a typical medical device has a thousand known vulnerabilities in them and they're overconnected to each other in the outside world. And everyone looked at this as a privacy issue, but we always said, I love my privacy. I'd like to be alive to enjoy it. Fast forward and during the pandemic, you saw an elevated volume and variety of adversaries looking to exploit our dependence on this undependable IT. And they knew we would pay. So we had over 400 attacks last year, depending on who's counting. Um, number two, um, we had to, in a hurry, adapt to the pandemic and remote telework. So you added all your old attack surface was added to new attack surface and new complexity that didn't go through your risk management or people like Mike. And uh, what unfortunately we came to see during this is not only were hospitals under record levels of attacks, um, we could prove statistically that these attacks affected loss of life. Uh, looking at natural experiments, 
we created instruments and measured them when I worked at CISA and published through CISA and CDC. Um, pretty serious life and death consequences. We know delays affect mortality rates. Cyber attacks introduce significant delays, which can introduce those losses of life. And I'm hoping that now that we see this as much more serious than fines or records, we'll have the will to, to, to finally lean in and do the right thing here. And then uh, in the context you sit, um, these are a volume of variety attacks are hitting everything in critical infrastructure. The water we drink, the food we put on our table, the oil and gas that fuels our cars and our homes, our schools, our hospitals, our municipalities, things are on fire and it's gonna take uh, a more dependable, defensible set of digital infrastructure. That's incredible stats, especially the number of IT organizations in healthcare that do not have security experts. Uh, just for our audience, um, this was an IBM study that found that during the pandemic, cost of cybersecurity breaches in healthcare industry amounted to about, on average, $7 million. So there's a significant cost to these threats. Um, in, 20, uh, in 2021, the life cycle of a breach in healthcare sector averaged 329 days. And that was almost 100 days more than uh, uh, life of a threat in the financial industry. So these layers that Mike talked about in terms of traditional laptops and mobile devices and then medical devices and then applications, enterprise applications, all those layers, you can see the complexity of identifying 500 healthcare providers or victims to ransomware attacks during the pandemic. And, and, and we, we hear this often that stealing healthcare data is much more lucrative than stealing credit card data, which is to me is, is, is also fascinating. So, Josh, uh, Mike, uh, looking forward, what did the next few years look like around healthcare cybersecurity, knowing that the threat vectors are becoming more complex about, you know, AI designed, engineered uh, threats, and the fact that more and more things are connected to the network. Uh, so it's not just the people, but, but machines. So your thoughts about how do we, how do we manage all of this in the future? Well, I'll take a stab initially. Um, it's going to take, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We're not yet near done. The the abuse on hospitals, uh, ICU strain is pushed profitable procedures uh, to the back burner while we deal with significant excess deaths and loss of life. And that'll per continue as we have uh, material erosion of uh, staffing in healthcare as well. So there's going to be a need for uh, a recovery and a reckoning post pandemic strain uh, well after the disease has taken its toll on us, we still have the second and third order damage. But I'm hoping that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom and be sick and tired of being sick and tired and, and maybe refactor. And as a philosopher hacker, uh, I think it starts with first principles. And one of the things I, I say often is the dependence we place upon something should be proportional to how dependable it is. Uh, the trust we place should be proportional to trust and transparency. So we've laid some groundwork. There's things like stealing from Deming where we have a software bill of materials push right now to understand what software is in our medical devices so we can tell am I affected and where am I affected when you see mass attacks like Log4j uh, recently. Yeah. Number two, um, we're hoping that hospitals assess their actual competence and readiness to have hyper-connectivity and that the level of con connectivity, to quote Stanley, that uh, with great connectivity comes great responsibility sorry uh and uh I'm, I'm really hoping it's not so much that we shouldn't do what we did to it security where we just throw more tech at the tech stack i think mm -hmm. it's not the work you put into the system but the complexity you take out of the system and it's not necessarily about adding more it's about understanding which systems are too important to fail uh, which are the most time sensitive and taking risk-based approaches to uh proportional trust and proportional resilience yeah, Mike, as you answer, I also want you to, can you, what keeps you most concerned? Is it phishing? Is it ransomware, third party risk, medical device security vulnerabilities? Like what, when you look at 2222, is it all of the above, yeah. but, you know, in terms of complexity of managing? What's so, so I, I, I think Josh nailed a lot of that and, and a lot of really interesting things. But I, I think a lot of people don't really think about where the vulnerabilities exist in technology and how this actually plays out, especially when you're talking about healthcare, because Josh said it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I so much agree. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can avoid this, 
but uh, and the statistic I, i'm not 100 percent sure on exactly the the numbers but in the last two years there's been more venture capital investment in health tech startups yeah. than in all the prior years of this century um that tells me we're running very quickly towards this digital connected future that josh is talking about and and everyone is running towards hyper connectivity but the the really interesting thing if you if you understand security and vulnerabilities the vulnerabilities in technology are mostly in brand new things because those things haven't had time to be worked out and really really old things you know josh was talking about a thousand uh a thousand vulnerabilities per medical device. The number of medical devices in our modern hospitals that run Windows XP, uh, Windows 7, even Windows 98 would, would be staggering to most people. And so healthcare is running to, let's deploy all this new stuff that's completely vulnerable. And we've got all this old stuff that's completely vulnerable. And we're going, well, how do we fix the problem? Yeah, I don't think you're going to get the health systems to not invest in this technology. Josh mentioned it really quickly, but I think you have to really understand that the American health system especially has really suffered over the last year. I saw a statistic that the aggregate profit margin for all health systems in the United States in 2020 was 0.5%. The entire country lost money. They're not running out to spend millions of dollars on cybersecurity. They're running out to spend millions of dollars on, can I get patients back? Can I keep my doctors working? And can I actually deliver care more profitably? Well, that's all being invested in all this new technology and it's all vulnerable. And we're going to do the same thing over again if we don't take the pause that Josh is talking about and actually think about it. One, just to add to that, one of the things I published at CISA, it was not specifically labeled as a response to the pandemic, but many of the hospitals were living below the security poverty line, and many of the operational warp speed contributors in the supply chain had no IT people or no security people. So instead of simply hand-waving at best practices and say, just do that, I created CISA.gov slash bad practices. And these are currently a list of three things that are dangerous and beyond the pale. And just for folks that know, right, CISA is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency for folks who don't know. So, yeah. Sorry about that. But these are the things that are beyond the pale, like hard-coded passwords, unsupported software. Um, and unfortunately, they're quite legion in medical areas. So part of this crawl, walk, run is let's get people to the starting line, say these are the negligence things that must be solved. Then let's get to the easy stuff, the medium stuff, the hard stuff. But it starts with uh, admitting we have a problem and focusing on the most egregious and dangerous exposures. And we're going to have the next couple of years rolling our sleeves up to help with those. Josh, I just want to quickly, I, I just read that the average uh, annual IoT and, and medical device cybersecurity spending for large hospitals is around like $293,000. I mean, to me, it feels like it's incredibly anemic spend to protect that layer that Mike mentioned. How, how, do, how do CIOs in healthcare, what, what, what do they need to fight for a stronger budget, knowing that it's a $7 million average cost when there's a threat in their space? Yeah, this would be a longer conversation. I'm happy to do it. But to <laughs> me, it's, it's not a raw dollar amount. Um, in fact, it's also deceptive. Some IT people track percentage of IT budget um, as a healthy indicator. But even I think that's a misnomer as the guy behind rugged software and rugged DevOps. It is so much easier to build in the fire escape into the building structure than to tack one on built, you know, built in versus bolt on. Sure, sure. To me, when we've done cybersecurity right, it should be invisible, pervasive, trustworthy, resilient. It's not an additional cost. It keeps your IT performing well, your nurses and doctors supported. There's less unplanned, un unscheduled rework. So I, I, I'm loath to put a specific goal on a price or a percentage and more look at that we should have the proportional value. It's like, how much should you spend on soap scrubbing in for surgeries? As much as necessary to maintain proper mortality rates and hygiene. You know, I, I want to go through this list of bad practices. I thought they were awesome, right? I mean, these are things you should be doing, but I can see every, uh, I won't say which one of my clients are doing this, but hey, single authentication. That was a great one, right? You know, known fixed default passwords. Of course, welcome. Welcome one. Welcome one with a star. Welcome one with like an exclamation point. Right. right. Everybody loves using end of life software. That's pretty awesome. You, you, you think that's, you think that's ridiculous, but, no, but I, realize. I, 
for just just so for the audience that that doesn't understand medical devices. So there has only been rules around security in medical devices really since 2014 when when the FDA published their first pre-market right. guidance. Just right. so you know, before that, it was standard practice at almost every medical device manufacturer to hard code the root password into <sighs> the system and use it in scripts wow. Wow. and then to and I'm not joking, publish it in the manual. For, for maintenance people yeah. for maintenance people exactly so you can go find the actual root passwords to a ton of medical devices on the internet and have root credentials on any hospital network that's and that's the reality of this problem and i have hacking is not even required when you know exactly how to log in and do damage yeah. Exactly. exactly. When they print it in the manual, it's it, it's not exactly you even call it hacking at that point, right? This is not even hacking. Um, hey, look, let's going forward. I mean, this was all doom and gloom. Um, gotta be some reality, though. Reality, though. Yeah. You know, security is reality here too. It is doom and gloom reality. But the question is, hey, is it getting better? Right? I mean, real quickly, you know, Josh, Mike, is it getting better? Are we seeing some improvements? Have, have we seen the light? Uh, where, where are we at this moment, Mike? I'll start with you. Yeah, so so I think there's a few ways that that I will say it is getting better, and I I know Josh has some really good ones around the public side of this, but but and you know I'm gonna pat myself on the back for a half second in that I think in the last few years we've started to see people focus on the problem and actually try and really solve this problem and realize that the security companies that have existed that have for the last twenty years basically said well, we're really good at financial services and they're more secure than a health system. So a health system should use our product because it'll work as well in a bank as it works in a hospital. It, it's a ridiculous idea, right? We talked about all the different technology, technological challenges that healthcare has that just aren't in traditional IT businesses. And you've started to see companies, whether the sort of IOMT firewall space, and I could name a bunch of names, whether us, right? We're we, the, the whole idea behind some of these companies is, Let's go understand health systems as a primary market. Let's figure out why they're not secure, right? That whole thing about three environments I was talking about earlier. Most people don't understand that. And until you understand that, you don't understand how to secure it. So I think there's a lot of people that are actually investing now. There's a lot of VCs that are investing in cybersecurity for health systems. And, and I think that that's going to raise the problem level. Um, I don't think it's a quick solution, but I think that at least now for the first time, one of the things that happens to me when I talk to a customer most often is the first thing out of the CISO's mouth is, thank you for understanding my my problems and not trying to tell me I'm like, you know, we, we work at Bank of America, so we work here, right? Like, God, thank you. A lot of sense, you know, getting right. the industry focus. Josh, real quick, you know, 30 seconds. All right. So I look, I think we have to look at uh, healthcare as it's target rich and cyber poor, and we need to meet them where they are and buy down risk in realistic ways. And it's going to take a journey. The good news is the awakening is happening. And um, there's a lot more political appetite in the last two weeks alone. I've been asked to come speak to people on the Hill who are willing to take good ideas off the shelf, either for workforce sim simulation development or our cash for clunkers idea to get to drain the swamp of some of the most egregious old tech and replace it with newer, better, more re resilient tech. You kind of have to know you have a problem first. The uh, the innovative spirit of the private sector and the political will and public sector, it's time to, to join forces and finally rise to meet this challenge. You know, all, this, all the environment is ready to go. And uh, I think all the different forces are ready to align. So congratulations. Mike Murray, founder and CEO of Scope Security and Josh Gorman, founder of I Am the Cavalry and the ex-senior advisor to CISA. So you can follow Mike at M-M-U-R-A-Y and Josh at Josh Corman. Um, and of course, follow him on Twitter. Thank you so much for being here. And you know, thank you for your insights. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, guys. Terrific. Such important work that they're doing. And it's it's truly life, life it's, it's saving lives. Uh, and it should be CIO's number one priority, not just in healthcare, but especially in healthcare. Um, I, I just, it's, it's a career preservation <laughs> importance uh, in terms of having security as your, as your number one, uh, as your number one priority. Um, we're waiting. Okay. Terrific. Okay. Well, please help us, uh, uh welcome Maureen Burns, senior partner in Bain's customer practice. Uh, Maureen's also an author. Maureen's one of Bain's foremost experts on the net promoter system and customer loyalty. Maureen has led some of Bain's most notable digital transformations, helping clients harness technology and data to earn customer loyalty. Maureen is the co-author of Winning on Purpose, 
the unbeatable strategy of loving customers. I love that title. It's so cool. <laughs> uh, you can follow the work that Maureen and her team uh, on Twitter at Baines Alerts. Welcome, Maureen, to the Shrub TV. Thank you so much for having me. Great to see you guys today. Thank you. Hey, happy Friday. We're excited to have you. Um, when we go back to customer service, when we think about what's going on, I remember watching Fred like mm -hmm. way, way back with the ultimate question. And I think that's where it all started. And I think uh, mm -hmm. you know this has been progressing uh, to now where you're talking about winning on purpose. And I think this is very important. It's been a, quite an evolution of the net promoter score. Uh, Bain invented this uh, for quite some time. Let's go to why. Why have you guys reinvented it now? Why is it important again? Uh, what are people looking at, especially given the digital age we are in today? So, yeah, no, great, great question. And you mentioned Fred, Fred Reichelt, who's uh, my co-author and invented the concept of the NPS and the metric net promoter. Um, you know, I was lucky to land in Boston and, and be mentored by Fred for years. And he started talking to me about this, this new book a few, um, a, a few years ago. And the idea was, you know, look, n n NPS has become ubiquitous in corporate America, but not everyone's doing it right. And in fact, some people are doing it wrong and some people have lost focus that the fundamental principle of NPS is really that companies exist to enrich their customers' lives. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to kind of, you know, validate that what, what he had said in those first books was actually still true. And so we did that like two ways. We said, look, can, and, and at the same time, a lot of what our work on loyalty has been based on the premise that it is the only sustainable way to drive financial results over time. And so, We've done like macro, um, you know, loyalty economics for lots of different clients over the years. But we we now stepped back and said, look, we can take 10 years of data. The companies identified the ultimate question and look at their performance over these last 10 years. And they they outperformed TSR to shareholder return for those companies was almost three times the market during what I think we can all agree was a pretty amazing run for the market. And so we unequivocally said, OK, this works. Um, and it's built on the foundation of really enriching people's lives, both customers and employees. So how do we just keep this message out there and get this message out? That's the first piece was just that we believe in it so firmly that we wanted to make sure we, we were kind of sharing the lessons and continuing the, the movement. The second piece was we said, look, is there anything about this digital world we're living in that makes Net Promoter less relevant? And like we can all agree that there are too many surveys. And when you think about Net Promoter as just a survey, you know, I think there's always a place for human feedback and we have to, you know, find ways to do that. But what Net Promoter really represents is the concept of really understanding how you set what you're how you are doing with customers and infusing organizations with the voice of the customer and making decisions based on what customers need and want and are telling you and giving that feedback to employees so that they can understand the impact they're having every day. And we said, OK, is this relevant in digital? And what um, what I did personally was I went out and talked to a lot of digital native companies um, and some of the most successful startups. And what was astounding to me was almost all the people I talked to were using core tenants of Net Promoter in how they were running their business. And it was it was just it was just almost a part of who they were from their inception. And, and it said to me, wow, this is not just relevant. It's even more important than it's ever been. And we need to take some. And these guys are doing it. Guys and gals are doing it better than a lot of the traditional companies who they're disrupting. And so therefore, how do we take the, and they, by the way, they figured out some cool things to, cool ways to do it better. How do we take all of those learnings and make sure that um, traditional companies get those as well? That's amazing. I speak to venture capitalists and angel investors, and they will look at, uh, you know, a startup's NPS in order, in order to decide whether they're going to invest or not. So it's, it's not just large companies, but also entrepreneurs and, and startup founders that are leaning into NPS to attract funding. Um, knowing that they will be excluded and not, will, then they won't be shortlisted if they don't have a healthy NPS, which is so, so it's great. Can you remind our audience what the ultimate question is? Yes, the not, question. Yeah. Really oh, yeah, I know that one. Um, it is the question Would you recommend this company to a friend or colleague? Um, okay. And then there's a score, you know, zero to 10, and the net promoter score is the metric based off of that. Um, and, you know, it's funny, people often ask where that question came from. You know, when Fred was starting to work years ago, looked at the correlation of all different questions and found that actually saying, would you put someone else in this experience? You know, would, would you, do you care enough about that? You care about other people. And so when you're asked the question, like, would you recommend this to someone? There's a level of action that's correlated with that. And so it actually had the biggest impact on the predictors of future economic value. 
I love that. And given the fact it's so simple, mm -hmm. I, I suspect it may be susceptible to misconceptions. Are, are they? Are they? What are the most common misconceptions? Yeah. I mean, well, we've all been to the car dealer, right? And or the mortgage broker, or someone who says, you know, my family doesn't eat for a month if I don't get a ten on the survey, right? So that is, and there's that we know that happens, and that is not the intent of NPS, and that's often when leaders don't. Um, implement the system in the right way. They put the focus on the score and not on the learning you get from the score. So that's one of the biggest risks that, that we see and, and the, the misuses of NPS, if you will. Um, but what we, what we found also was that um, there was a lot of appetite for uh, a value-based metric to complement NPS. And so uh, we, we developed this metric called earned growth, which is actually just the concept of how much of your growth is coming from your existing customers staying with you longer buying more from you and um, telling their friends about you. And, and, and then that's really earned growth versus bought growth, which is paid marketing dollars. Always, there's always gonna be marketing. I don't want anyone to say there's not gonna be marketing. But what we found is one of the engines that drives these loyalty leaders and the sophisticated investors, I think you're talking about what they understand is the more growth you get from existing, and by the way, SaaS software companies have known this for years. Yes. Um, the more growth you get from your existing customers, the just better sustainable financial model you have. And so by putting this metric and NPS together, I think it gives you a fuller picture of that kind of flywheel that's so critical. And Maureen, you know, some advanced practitioners of NPS know that there's three forms of net promoter feedback, right? And those are competitive, relationship and experience NPS. Uh, Ray, you're like, you're, you're an expert. That's awesome. <laughs> I've been looking at this for a while. Um, but, but my point being here is you guys are the experts. You guys created those. Why, why those three? What do those mean to folks? And, you know, why did you come at it um, from those angles? Because that, that does give you a very, that gives you more dimension, right? You get a lot more detail. So. Yeah, no. So it's, and, and I'll quick, very quickly explain. So competitive is really going out and asking customers and often double blind, like a research study, how do I, you know, what's my NPS versus competitors? And we actually have a data business called NPS Prism that does this across industries. And it's really clean and consistent NPS feedback that shows you how well you're doing versus your competitors. And that's really critical, right? Because if you're just looking internally, you can get better and better and think you're doing wonderfully. But if your competitors are getting better faster, you're not going to make any progress. So that's kind of competitive. Nope. Um, relationship is one where, you actually go out and ask customers on a you know semi-annual, annual basis how you're doing. And that gives you great feedback around the overall health of that relationship. And customers will often, you know, especially if you have a good, good relationship with them, they will take time and really tell you and share with you how that relationship is going. And um, huddle, outer loop. Yeah, I mean, right, you got it all. Um, yeah. And, and, and then finally, there's there's um, a touch point or transaction, which is, you know, you've all had a contact center interaction. Um, and what you described is all of that feedback is wonderful, um, but if you don't do anything with it, it's useless. And so there's a, the, the net promoter system puts um, feedback loops and learning loops around that feedback to make sure that it gets to the right people and they can work it. And by the way, increasingly, we are always looking for ways that operational metrics can help operational digital signals, lots of other, there's, we have so many ways we can know um, how we're doing with customers, that that's integrated into, into all of this so that we have really a holistic picture of how we're doing with customers. Yeah, and you do this by industry too. You mm -hmm. even have specific industry benchmarks. There's like, like 20 or 30 of these. Like oh yeah, we, I mean, we've got auto, we've got grocery, we're gonna have uh, pharmacy, we've got uh, banking, we've got PNC, we've got life. Like, yeah, and, and by the way, I, I love to give presentations where I show the NPS versus total shareholder return. And you know the NPS leader is always at the top, and I'm like, and it works in banking, and it works in insurance, and it's um, what's so cool is we now have this data, you know, on a quarterly basis refreshed. You know, banking is like eighty thousand customers, um, so that people can really understand where they stand. Amazing, Maureen. Over the last uh, several years, uh, you know, digital transformation trailblazers have invested in. Uh, social listening tools, mm -hmm. and they're able to capture unstructured data, data that you find on Facebook or Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, wherever it may be, LinkedIn, all the digital properties mm -hmm. where people collaborate and socialize. And some uh, are looking uh, to the golden question of have you recommended, uh, or to, to would you recommend, and using social listening tools, they're identifying, have you recommended to whom and did it result in incremental revenue or advocacy, almost a social promoter score based on, you know, again, uh, uh, customers that are willing to share their experiences, good or bad, um, on social media. 
Do you see uh, companies that are that are using NPS as their north star to delight stakeholders, advancing and learning and creating and, and having access to more contextual intelligence in terms of the advocates and what those advocates are doing to bring more awareness to, to their brand? A hundred percent. And I think what you're calling is we call it rallying promoters. Like what's the point of creating all these promoter customers if they're not out there becoming your marketing engine? Sure. And so, and by the way, we're at this wonderful confluence of, of, of technology and, and behavior where all of a sudden people are out there actually talking about these experiences in social media, you know, influencers on TikTok are selling, you know, more, you know, Gen Z buys more from TikTok than probably anywhere else. Right. Totally, totally. And so, I think increasingly, and this was part of when I was like, well, how does NPS work in the digital world? The, the, the concept of having promoter customers is so much more important even than it was before. And as people lose more and more, frankly, control over their brands, you know, because your brand is going to be shaped by creators and, and influencers, um, having people that are incredibly loyal to that brand is so important. Um, and having those promoters that will talk about you and recommend you you know, look, paid marketing is just, it, it's getting harder and harder, right? Like right. the ROIs are getting, like everyone is fighting for the same and everyone has the same models and the model, one person's model gets better. The next person's model gets better. Um, but what you can distinguish yourself on is if you have more promoter customers out there that are marketing you day to day, that's way more powerful than, you know, kind of getting the next best iteration on your, you know, acquisition modeling. I totally agree. No, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, like I remember Fred having these stories uh, talking about that along with uh, the golden rule on loyalty, right? Yeah. Uh, Apple stores, Chick-fil-A, uh, QuickBooks, uh, Intuit, right? All those kind of things. I mean, he'd always bring those things up. And I, I think that, that would always light up, you know, the room because people always want to know how they did that. Um, and today in the digital world, I mean, we're, we're walking in our ways into the metaverse. We're looking at mm -hmm. token economics, right? Those token economics are basically the foundation of incentive reward systems around those golden rule. How does that come back, right? Because I can see NPS for the metaverse. I can oh, see totally. yeah. and loyalty converge. So. Oh, when, you, when you have skin in the game, you automatically have an incentive to, to be an advocate, I would think. Uh, you know, yeah. because again, that, that token is skin in the game. And Absolutely. one of the things, oh, sorry. And one no, of no, things, go ahead. We're all getting excited. <laughs> activating movements, right? The ultimate thing of a brand is the power of activating a movement, a purpose, a cause, and getting people super excited about that. So tying all that together, mm -hmm. I'll hand it back to you. <laughs> no, I, it's, I, you can see I'm getting, I, you know, what we talk about in the book is customer love, right? And yes. when Fred first said, I really want this book to be about customer love, I was like, can we get it? like stodgy business people talking about customer love, but they are. And, you know, I'm like, okay, what's customer love look like in the metaverse, right? I mean, that's a whole new world because that world is not even being, oftentimes your brand is going to have to associate with things that are being created by, you know, individuals. Mm -hmm. And so, man, having people that love your brand in a world where you have less control is probably a really good thing. Um, and so I think, you know, customer love becomes even more important as we move into what I personally think is a really exciting time with, uh, sure. to your point, like all this the convergence of things that'll finally enable a lot of the experiences we always like dreamed of and thought would come true. But uh, now we're at a point where I can actually see it happening. I, you know, I, I, my experience, uh, my working experience, I, I firmly believe you need employee love before you can earn customer love. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, are, are, are companies as mature in terms of measuring loyalty and, and utilizing NPS internally. I mean, we all have internal customers. Mm -hmm. You know, when you call a call center and there's a defect in a product, at that point, customer service is the is an internal customer to engineering so that the folks can fix these issues in a timely manner. Do companies, are they, are they as mature using NPS looking inward as they are uh, when they deal with their paying external customers? I would say the loyalty leaders the, the really companies that differentiate, they get this fundamental concept okay. that you cannot love your customers without loving your employees. And many of them have robust feedback loops and things like that. Um, but that is, I think that that is one of the things that makes those loyalty leaders really special. And that others are increasingly understanding this and it's both employee feedback. So creating the, the mechanisms and the space for them to, to really give their feedback. And then to your point, that's sort of to each other, but 
these internal things around like help desk and internal teams and how am I doing and delivering to my employees so they can do their jobs. I think that is something that companies are increasingly realize really matters. And in this world where, you know, we face it's so overused, but it's so true, the great resignation, um, these loyalty leaders are at an advantage because they've created an environment where they've shown their employees, their fundamental mission, their customers love them. And so that's a different environment when you're going to work every day, um, working for a place that customers hate, right? Right, right. Your general existence is more pleasant. And it's kind of another part of that flywheel. And a safe culture where you have permission to give feedback and and, and not always at nine or a 10, you know, be honest, uh, you know, where if there's room for improvement, there's an opportunity to, to take action and continuously improve. And that's so much depends on the a healthy culture where, you know, I, I think it was Seth Godin who said, people not, are not afraid of failure, they're afraid of blame. Mm-hmm. You know, you give constructive feedback and then you're viewed as someone who may be not as positive and aligned with the core mission. And, and so I think you're right, absolutely. The companies that I work with that are, you know, hyper growth trajectory, there's an element of radical transparency inside mm-hmm. the business. Um, and they're all mission led. And the mission is to, love have the customers love them so yeah no 100 100%, 100%. all right so real quick lots of people have taken this survey who are you on the path to greatness tell us like give us a sneak peek on what the results are so oh the results <laughs> you know i think that um we have a lot of folks that are feeling in the middle right now and so uh <laughs> yeah um and so i think that that means there's lots of opportunity right uh and you know exactly. it, what we try to do in the book is lay out some of the really practical things that people can do. Um, and you know, you can find that on netpromotersystem.com. We have we have lots of um, diagnostics and, and tools that you can use to kind of find out where you are. Um, and and the, I, what we do in the book is we really lay out tactically, what are the things that these leaders do? Because it's one thing to say, love your customers, um, but when you're running a huge company, there's a lot of different decisions and trade-offs that need to get made every day. So how do you kind of institutionalize a system where it's, it's really clear who comes first and how you make decisions like this? So Thank you so much for being here. Um, Maureen Burns, thank you so much for being here. Senior partner in Bain's Customer Practice and author of Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers. You can find the book on Amazon. You can follow the Twitter at Bain Alerts. And of course, check out the Net Proponer Score uh, system, uh, which is available on the Bain website. So thank you for being here and have a wonderful Friday. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Really critical. What a simple question. You know, a simple, powerful question. But it's what you do with the answers that matters. Um, and so you have to be motivated to really learn and continuously improve. Okay, Ray, what a privilege for us to have Scott Becker, publisher and founder of Becker's Healthcare and Becker's Hospital Review and a partner at McGuire Woods. Becker's Hospital Review is the leading hospital magazine for hospital business news and analysis for hospitals and healthcare system executives. Scott is a partner at McGuire Wood and former board member of McGuire Woods. Scott also served as chair of the National Healthcare Practice at McGuire's Wood for more than 12 years. You can follow his company on Twitter at Becker's HR. Welcome, Scott, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, folks, so much for having me. And what a magnificent presentation that I just listened to with uh, Maureen Burns and Winning on Purpose. Uh, All of the Bain stuff is brilliant, and and the work by Maureen is fantastic. That was just a fantastic uh, segment. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Letting me listen in. Fabulous. Thank you. You know, hey, thanks a lot. I mean, we've been bumping into each other all a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, I don't know what's going on. It must be in the water, but, you know, healthcare <laughs> is hot. You're hot. All this stuff's happening. We got hymns. We got chime. We've got, you know, all these kind of like conferences popping up, lots of podcasts. Everybody wants to know what's going on. So let's just take a step back and start with you. How did you get into this space? People look at it like, oh, it's a lawyer. He's kind of talking about stuff. But wait, no, no, he's got this whole media empire. Wait, no, no, he's a podcaster. I mean, there's so many facets to Scott Becker. Sure. No, thank you, Ray. I mean, I I started in healthcare 30 plus years ago when I was a young lawyer um, and, you know, was looking to be able to connect with and visit with more people. And so ended up starting a newsletter, started conferences. And that at some point turned into a serious business where we built out, you know, serious teams of people in editorial. Now we've got 30 plus writers uh, in conference management and key account management and business development and so forth. And we, 
you know, we cover the landscape of healthcare with the biggest focus being on hospitals and health systems and, and, a, and a great pleasure. So hospitals, and health systems, health IT, where I get to connect with you a good deal um, in the back orthopedics and spine surgery centers and a variety of areas in healthcare. So a, a great, great pleasure and, and sort of, uh, you know, became a labor of love, but really grew out of a different purpose 100 years ago. So, so 30 years to go to be exact, it feels like 100 years, but great fun. Well, again, you're an incredible influencer, thought leader, number one podcaster. And so, uh, you know, we want, we started the show talking to two security experts and we looked at the stats and the landscape of cybersecurity and how incredible growth, unfortunately growth in terms of the threat factors in healthcare and what we need to be aware of. What are some of the maybe three or four trends that you're following in 2022 and beyond that all CIOs and CSOs in healthcare industry should be aware of? Sure. So that, that's a great question. So you focusing on the CISO side and the and the and the cyber side, with, with the constant balance is sort of keeping up with the threats, fighting off the threats, and it's really two different ways. It's the human protection effort and then constantly adding technology. It's sort of both. It's it's the the better filters, the better everything to constantly be checking on cyber attacks. Plus, it's also constant training of people to make sure they're not clicking the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. They can inadvertently let them off. The, the other thing we talk about so much in cybersecurity is, you know, the gold standard is resilience. Where one system breaks down or gets ransomed or hacked, and you could immediately put up into play another system. Uh, unfortunately, the perfection of it, the seamless way of doing that resilience is, is almost impossible to do. So, so I'd say the three or four things we talk about are th this concept of people efforts, human efforts to avoid being hacked and, and to avoid cyber threats, technological efforts to avoid being threats, resilience, and probably the fourth thing is the constant assessment of cost benefit because you could spend your entire billion dollar budget on cybersecurity, but of course you can't really do that because you need to provide patient care and the very important parts of clinical delivery. So it's, it's trying to figure out cost benefit and doing the smart things you got to do to make sure you're being as safe as possible and perfection's almost impossible. But but those are the three or four things we think about and constantly talk about and we hear from people in terms of cybersecurity. And there's a lot more, but those are three or four of the big ones. Just, just a follow-up question. You know, I, when I speak to business leaders about the impact of the pandemic over the last 23 months, Many agree that from a cultural and digital transformation, the pandemic served as an accelerant, maybe as much as a decade uh, for e-commerce. As an example, we absolutely saw a decade of adoption of e-commerce just in May, June, July of 2022. And in terms of the tens of millions of people that work from home as due to the pandemic, where businesses really pre-pandemic culturally wouldn't accept that you could be you know, proficient and productive working from home. When you look at the growth of telemedicine, as an example, do you believe that the pandemic has accelerated innovation uh, velocity, speed and direction in the healthcare sector for many, many years? Yeah, 100%, 100%. And people use similar figures, whether it's pushed things forward 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it might be, or it also just broke down walls that might not have been broken down. There's so much resistance to some of this stuff, and you see it very anecdotally, and you see it very completely. A few years ago, I did it... Uh, discussion and interview with people at Cleveland Clinic in charge of their telehealth program, and they were just getting started. And maybe 2% of their visits were telehealth, and they thought maybe they'd get to 5 or 6% within a few years. <laughs> then, of course, the pandemic hits, and they hit it out of the park. You know, I mean, in terms of the growth of telehealth. Of course, there were systems like Kaiser Permanente that was already there. They had had the Bernard Tyson leadership that pushed them way out there in front of it sure. before anybody else. And then when the pandemic came, they were already great at it and, and, and did very well at servicing it through the pandemic. But, but so many systems were either ahead of the game to begin with or really accelerated, like you said, through the pandemic, 100%, a, a ton of acceleration. And there's the anecdotal situation. All of us have physicians that prior to this wouldn't see you telephonically or virtually and now will. And of course, it's just like how urgent care made a big difference in convenience of care health has accelerated that exponentially so no it's a great question and thank you you know good point there bernard tyson like what a legend in kaiser oh, he, he was, just uh, retired he was... right before the pandemic 
uh, and a lot of foresight and vision. I mean, really setting up Kaiser to do some great stuff over there. Uh, and so you know, tie back to that, right? I mean, we realize why technology is so important. We see where digital health is going. What about this metaverse thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, the yeah. So the metaverse is a, is a, is a great, great question. And, and uh, you know, Ray, I had a recent chance to visit with you on this issue on, on two different settings. And of course, your thoughts on this are far more advanced than mine. But, uh, you know, given that I speak for a living, I'll talk about it anyways. But I mean, the, the reality is there are people that are far, far more versed in where the metaverse is going than I am. The, the best that I could visualize it is all the things that we're doing today are going to be um, 100 times better than they are right now. So if we're on Zoom filming a TV show on, you know, not on Zoom, but on Disrupt and, and the Disrupt TV or whichever platform we're using, and it's fantastic, in, in, you know, in, in X amount of time, it'll be that much better. You know, we, we, we've worked with some companies that do this digital joint appearances where you're supposed to feel like you're in the same room, where it looks like mm -hmm. to the audience, like you're in the same room. And those types of experiences and how they present and how they look are getting better and better. But my sense of the metaverse is just to look at this very simple thing of human interaction is will be, you know, it, it, it'll feel a billion times more real, like I'm really there with Ray Wong, or really there with your team, and we'll really, really, really feel much more the intimacy of personal relationships. And, and we all know, oh, this phone thing, this Zoom thing, the podcasting thing is so convenient for talking to so many people and visiting with so many people and staying connected to the world. We also know that sitting down with somebody for 10 minutes you often can cut to the chase in a whole different way. It's why people always travel for business to go see people. And obviously that travel for business is exhausting and unneeded, but there is a benefit to some of it where you really get to know people in a better way, in a more deeper way, and really understand their problems that they're trying to solve in a more deep way. And hopefully the metaverse bridges this gap between what we're doing today and what we get in, again in an in-person visit, you know, that somewhere between there. And again, there's so many different definitions of views what the metaverse is, is going to be. I think Mark Zuckerberg doesn't know what he thinks it's going to be other than he wants to make it a big moneymaker for Facebook. I don't think he's really got a deep vision on it like he did on Facebook, but maybe he's, maybe he does. I, we'll see. Sure, sure. You know, uh, I'm in the Boston area, so surrounded by these incredible large hospital campuses, healthcare campuses. So I envision at some point a digital twin of some of these hospitals where for onboarding, you know, employees can enter the virtual campus and learn about different departments and how they intersect and different practices and expertise that exist on the campus. When I visit hospitals, I got to tell you, most often I'm lost. I get lost and I have yeah. to ask people how to uh, go from A to B. So hopefully the metaverse will be a, but, but, a different But your point is so right on. You can go to the very best hospital in the system. Let's say you're in Boston, you're going to Mass General or Partners. Yes. Always ranked in the top three to five in U.S. News and World, World Report. Sure. If you have a serious problem, you want to be at a place like that. In Chicago, you might want to be at Northwestern, although near Chicago, sure. Rush, North Shore are great too, so it's not to offend anybody, but all great. But, but you have a serious problem. My father had this horrible type of cancer that can only be operated at Northwestern here. But to your point, when it comes to the, that next level of navigation, Yes. It is a people-intensive effort. It's a technology-intensive effort, and most systems don't really have it right yet. I mean, that navigation, and that's why everybody talks about this. Navigation still is—you could be great in tertiary care, the most difficult specialty in the world—and the navigation is still often awful. And, and so, your point is so well taken. And with the metaverse, the mix of the metaverse, technology, and they're getting better at it. Yes. But it's—it's it's a, it's a—but it's—it's people-intensive still to do it right. It requires. A call center and people that are really focused on navigating patients. Okay, you've done this. Now you got to get radiation therapy. Here's where I can get you set up for it. And it, it's it's still very disjointed. But but Absolutely. hopefully in the metaverse and these things help. And a combination of technologies. You know, we have incredible computer visioning capabilities that can be installed on your mobile device. If I'm in a hallway of a hospital, if I could just point to it in a secure private manner, perhaps I'm on an internal wireless, and it immediately tells me how close I am to the cafeteria how close I am to the gift shop to buy flowers for someone I'm visiting. I just think combination of the digital twin plus voice enabled digital assistant with computer visioning on a mobile device, you can create that navigation experience which would be effortless. 
And, uh, and again, augmented reality can point arrows to where you need to go. I'm sorry, I sound frustrated as someone who always gets lost in healthcare. But, but it's not just, it's just not, it's just not physically lost. It's physically lost. I agree with you hundred percent. It's not just physically lost. It, it's almost more important from my perspective, clinically lost. People are clinically lost as I've had this procedure. What happens now? And since we've gotten better at, you know, the family members get a text, you're, 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 patient is through surgery it's gone okay it's this it's that so think or it's going to be out of surgery in two hours so don't keep on bothering us because you're going to know in two hours they've gotten better at it but there is a long way to go and i, and I think your point in this physical navigation clinical navigation all those things there's a lot that be, that could be done with the virtual reality and and, and so forth 100 percent yeah, I know. And, and part of related to this, like, I mean, there are all these new technologies that have emerged, right? These are some important things that are popping up. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, what are you keeping an eye on? Like, what's hot for you? Folks are coming to you all the time saying, so, hey, check this out. So, so on your list. Yeah. So the, the things that I, and, and, and somebody made this distinction for us, Ray, and you and I talked about this as well. There are two big distinctions. There's technology that enables better leveraging of service providers, hmm. Uh, and there's technology that I would say is next level that in some ways really not replaces, but gets much closer to replacing certain amount of staff or providers or people. And there's two different things. So when you think about telemedicine, telemedicine doesn't replace the physician or the nurse or whoever is providing care. It, it better enables it. It better leverages it. It avoids all this friction and coming in and out of the office that's not needed. It it it, it makes the the physician's life, the nurse's life better because they're done at five, they don't have to drive home, whatever it might be that they're doing if they're doing it that way. There's all these things that are technology-enabled services that don't fundamentally change the service, but technologically better leverage it, make it better, make it easier, make it more convenient. That's one level of service. The next level of service, and I see this more right now on the business side than I do on the clinical side, it is truly artificial intelligence-driven solutions. So, so the great example would be there's an AI company in revenue cycle that literally can teach itself once it gets into the system and, and keep on doing so many rote tasks that people were needed for. And nobody wants to get rid of those people, but those people are impossible to find. You know, they're, they're relatively lower wage jobs that it's impossible to recruit for the turnover before the great resignation was incredible. Now it's, 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 and now it's, it's much worse. It's almost like so many of these things to think of it in a simple way. We used to all go, I'm old enough to have always gone to a bank tower and that world got completely turned upside down, you know, to where you go to an ATM and it just, it's better for everybody uh, on a million levels. Similarly, you go to the grocery store to check out. If you and I were checking out several years ago at the grocery store, we're sort of like, how does this work? Why do I want to do this? Isn't it easy to just go to the person? I want the person to do it for me. Yeah. And now, of course, if I got less than 10, 12, 15 items, I want to do it myself. Because so I get in and out. There's not a line or the line is small. You know, I'm not behind somebody who's got 200 items. So, so the <laughs> next great promise is, how do you move things from technology supporting people to a different level where technology can do it itself? And, and, and again, it's not everything. Computer-assisted surgery is still likely going to need a professional surgeon, but it's going to make him or her better. But but there will be things that are more and more, we see it in the artificial intelligence and a lot of business operations, we've just automated a lot of things where, where you've truly made the people left easier, which is particularly important in a time of, uh, you know, very low, low unemployment and, and just hard to find people to fill these jobs. So it's, you know, and it's, and it's often there's much less variability much easier to manage. You can focus more on your core functions of what does the health system need to be great at. We've got to be great on oncology care. We want all resources on that. We don't want so many resources spent, you know, tracking accounts receivable. We, we want those 10,000 bodies. We want that to be 7,000. We want more money to spend on making oncology treatment better. But I think that's the next promise is things that are AI driven that really take the job over like an automatic teller machine. That makes perfect sense. Scott, my last question to you. We've had hundreds of startup founders that have been guests on our show. So we have a lot of entrepreneurs that watch Disrupt TV. And in the first segment, we had two founders talk about the incredible amount of funding in the healthcare technology space over the last two years, especially over the last two years. What advice, and you're an incredibly influential, trusted voice in this space. What advice do you give to CEOs of startups? Uh, perhaps young entrepreneurs, brilliant minds coming out of the MITs of the world, building 
and the next, uh, you know, the next Google, Apple, Salesforce. What advice do you give to these incredibly, you know, mission-led, purpose-driven young entrepreneurs who really want to improve the quality in the healthcare sector? It's a great, great question. So there's two pieces of advice that I'm constantly giving to people that are software as a service founders. And then we'll talk about other types of founders. And the funding issue is a fascinating issue because it, it, it it's good and it's bad. And I'll talk about that for a second. I'll go quick, I promise. I know we're running out of time. So the first thing we tell software as a service founders, you have to be constantly getting your product better. It is never done. It is never done. Your product is never done. If you look at Apple, their products are never done. Microsoft's products are never done. It is never done. You're constantly improving, and you have to have critical mass to keep on improving it. Second is you have to start commercializing from the get-go. You know, too many people, they can spend years developing their product, and by the time they develop their product to the next, the next, the next, the next level, the market's already passed them by. You have to be constantly doing these two things in sync and really to the ignoring of everything else. And then you have to sort of think a little bit about as we get this going, our product gets better and better. Our commercialization gets better and better. Yes, you have to look at some of the things in the back office in terms of the background of what are we gonna need to ultimately scale. But you gotta be looking at these two things constantly. How do we get better and how do we get better on commercialization? That's one thing. The second thing that is absolutely fascinating, and you talk about this, this, this uh, venture capital club, this money club, is so incredibly well-powered today. You know, it's like, I always think well, there's an old joke. Any club that would let you in is not a good club. You know, that's an old Groucho Marx joke. And what you find with the venture capital is, you know, for the life of me, there are certain venture capital funds I want to put money with, and I have to beg, borrow, and steal to get money with them, even if it's, you know, it's small amounts because they are so oversubscribed with pension funds, endowment funds, and really rich people, and all those kinds of things. You're, there's that concept. But what's happened with this overfunding, and entrepreneurs talk about this constantly. I'm sure some of your entrepreneurs have talked about this. The, the, probably the most important thing in developing a new product, a new software, a new something, is that you actually have product fit. Yeah. That, and, and what I mean by that is that somebody actually wants your product. That, that in, and to get to a spot where somebody needs your product, for most of us, there was a person in law school who was so bright, he could write a paper on the second draft, whereas most of us it would take eight to 10 drafts. It, would, it, it takes a while to really get to a spot where you've written something well. And it's very similar with product iteration. It takes a while to get a product where the, where the market actually wants your product. Yeah. Almost nobody's able to do it. There are people that are just brilliant and could, could sure. see it, and this is what the market's going to want, and that's it. Most of us don't have that. The problem with, you know, I, one entrepreneur I talked to, they're at a burn rate of 200000 a month, and his stress is that his venture capital fund wants them to be at a burn rate of about a million and a half a month because oh, they wow. want them growing that quickly. Yeah. And what yeah. happens with the entrepreneur, he has to really make sure you, know, you get to this point of rinse and repeat. I know I've just got to add salespeople, add engineers, but first you have to make sure that the products you're doing is really wanted by your customers. And so the, the big travesty of too much money being thrown at stuff, you, you see, obviously, the technology business, the software business, is so much more binary than the private equity funding business. And, yeah. and, and what I mean by that is it's, it's one or zero. It works or it blows out. And it's yeah. not that bad, but if you talk to a typical VC, and I know I'll shut up in a second, a third of them burn out entirely, a third are okay, and a third is where they make all their money in a, yeah. in a typical portfolio. Right. And, and so many of these ones that are on that, the, the losing third, they never really developed clear product fit or wasn't really scalable, those two issues. But, but again, I come back to whatever you're doing, you've got to, it, the, the product is never done. And second is you've got to start commercializing very early. Those, those are my two brilliant, 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 brilliant advice. Brilliant advice. Yeah, Scott, no, amazing. We're going, to, we're going to have to talk more again. You know that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Scott Becker, publisher and founder of Becker's Healthcare and Becker's Hospital Review and partner at McGuire Woods. You can follow him at Becker's HR. Real quick, what events are you going to be at in the next few months? Sure. Well, the, 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 one of the things that we have going on is our, our big healthcare annual meeting, which is a magnificent CEOs, CFOs, leaders from health systems. That's in Chicago in late April. And then I'll be at a variety of different events. We've got a healthcare private equity event coming up next week. I'll be at in Chicago, and, and uh, uh, different event, but but just a variety of different things. We'll we'll be out and about, and uh, you know, love the chance to visit with you two. What a great pleasure! Thank you, Thank folks, you, very, very much. Thank you, sir. Take care, Scott. Wow, <laughs> he's uh, he's a really important, trusted voice in the space, and uh, that was great advice to entrepreneurs, like you know, understanding product fit. 
Like, do people want your product? <laughs> so, it's amazing. It's, it's almost as a fundamental question as net promoter score. First and principle. Yet, yeah, it's first. It's it's our yeah. It was, I think it was Josh who said first principle thinking. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. In fact, I just watched a video from Elon Musk talking about the importance of first principle. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, that was uh, that was episode two sixty seven, folks. Uh, and uh, we're gonna we're not gonna have a show next week. Um, and Ray can talk about an, a really exciting event that he's hosting next week. But we'll be back February twenty fifth. So two weeks from today for episode 268, we'll have Bill Nussi, CEO, founder of Freeing Energy. We'll have Andy Lodato, executive vice president and chief operating officer at the Vitamin Shop. And lastly, Candice Factor, CEO, founder of Disco. And it's, it's not the disco you're thinking, but disco. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you're not going to get Ray dancing on Disrupt TV. We're saving that for episode 300. <laughs> so, so, well, hey, everybody. Ray, yeah, go ahead. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. If it's Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, join us for Disrupt TV um, almost every Friday. And, of course, catch all the reprint, uh, replays as well on Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify now, and even Google. So we'll definitely see you there. So thanks a lot, everybody. Bye, everyone. <laughs>